I'm humbled, and I think you should be too, by what a gift it is to have elders who love us and pray for us um, and, and shepherd us well. So what a blessing um, the shepherds God has called um, for our church are to us. Um, if you will open your Bibles with me, we'll continue this morning through the book of Mark. We'll be in Mark 6, 1 through 6 today, if you'll turn there. As Pastor Chuck said, my name's Josh, if we haven't met, and I am very honored to have the, the privilege of sharing God's word with you this morning. So, if you're ready, let's read God's word from Mark 6, 1 through 6. This is the word of God. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath day, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went on about among the villages teaching. This is God's word. You know, <clears throat> these past few weeks, um, through the book of Mark, we have come across some of the most incredible stories about Jesus in the whole Bible, haven't we? Climactic stories. Jesus, Lord over the storms. Jesus, Lord over the demons and spirits we saw on Good Friday. Jesus, the compassionate healer who tenderly heals the woman with the flow of blood and, and gives her an outcast, gives an outcast woman a voice compassionately. Jesus, Lord, even over death, who took Jairus' little da daughter's hand in his and said, daughter, I say to you, arise, and she returned from the dead. We have seen magnificent stories of Jesus' power and compassion and ability to save. It's been a joy to go through the book of Mark. These climactic stories have filled the chapters we've gone through in the past week. So how interesting, how strange of Mark to put this anti-climax of a story at the tail end of them. This story in which nothing happens. Where before we, we saw the problems that we're so familiar with, natural disasters, spiritual warfare, sickness, sin, and death, and 
Consistently, Jesus has responded to and saved and solved the problem, but here, nothing happens. We get this strange word from Mark in verse 5, Jesus could do no mighty work there. So what is happening here? Why the anticlimax now? Why do we go from Jesus appearing popular and powerful and compassionate and mighty to save in Mark 1 through 5, and then in Mark 6 have him appear dishonored and incapable? What's different here, and why is this story here? What's the problem? Well, if we start to look at the text, we'll see verse 1, the first difference is Jesus has moved to a new location. He went away from there, there meaning Capernaum. Remember, Jesus so far has spent the beginning of his ministry in Capernaum up by the Sea of Galilee, the north side of Israel, and it says he comes into his hometown, which is a day's journey to the southwest into the town of Nazareth. And Nazareth is a backwoods town in the hills, and evidently, word about Jesus has not spread to Nazareth. Or maybe they've heard about a teacher up north in Capernaum who's claiming to be the Messiah, who's doing these miraculous things, but they haven't made the connection that that teacher in Capernaum is Jesus who grew up in their hometown. But Mark tells us Jesus entered Nazareth just like he's entered every other setting so far. Just like we saw him enter Capernaum, just like we saw him enter the town of the Gerasenes, just like we saw him enter the synagogues by the lake. Jesus comes into the town and on the Sabbath he enters the synagogue and begins to teach. On the Sabbath day he began to teach. And we know what Jesus was teaching. We've seen that in places like Mark 1, 14 through 15, that Jesus was entering synagogues opening the scriptures and saying, the kingdom of God is at hand and I am the one bringing it in. He taught authoritatively and he taught people to repent, to believe in him, to put their trust in him, that he was the one who would bring in the kingdom. He was teaching that he was the Messiah. Now, in Capernaum, we saw, like in Mark one twenty-seven. The, the people up north were amazed by this new teacher. And while some people maybe were intrigued or believed for the wrong reasons, many people embraced Jesus and really believed this guy might be it, really followed him. That's where he's collected a lot of the 12 disciples from this northern region. People believed in Capernaum, but that's not how it goes in Nazareth, is it? In Nazareth, Mark says, the people were not amazed at Jesus, but that they were astonished, is Mark's word. And he unpacks in, in their, the things they say in verses two, two through three that this is not a good astonishment. This is a, uh, a bad astonishment, an, a feeling of being incredulous, right? They're not amazed at the authority of the one proclaiming the kingdom. It says they take offense at him. They're offended by someone they're familiar with trying to preach at them, right? They start looking at one another when Jesus is teaching and go, wait a second, we know this guy. This isn't the Messiah. That's Mary's boy. 
That's the carpenter from up the street. That's his brothers right over there. Those are his sisters. This isn't, this guy's not the Messiah. He's just one of us. And how dare he get up there and teach us to repent, call us to believe in him. He's just like one of us. How dare he talk like he's anything more? And they took offense at him. They did not believe he was who he says he he said he was, and they took offense at him. So, in essence, the difference between Mark six and everything we've seen before is that in Capernaum people believed in Jesus, but in Nazareth there was unbelief. As a whole, the people of Nazareth did not believe. In Jesus. So the conflict of this story in Mark 6, the problem it presents us with is this question, what happens when a town rejects Jesus wholesale? When they take offense at him and do not believe in him? But more to the point, there's something, we can get more specific, because this isn't just any town rejecting Jesus, it's a town of people who knew him, who were familiar with him, right? Think about that. Jesus' next-door neighbor took offense at him. The people who watched God incarnate, the only person to ever live a sinless life, the people who grew up knowing him, in the end here, were offended by him and rejected him. How do we make sense of that? That you could live your whole life knowing somebody who never sins, who is the perfect image of God's character, God's love and wisdom and kindness and compassion, that they could have known him and then when confronted with him say, this guy's a nobody, we are offended at him and we do not believe at him. How does that happen? We'll spend most of our time this morning answering those two questions. First, what happens when a town has no faith and rejects Jesus. But first, how can it be that the people most familiar with Jesus are the ones who reject him? So our answer to that why and how question, we start to get in verse four when Jesus responds. You can usually count on it in in these stories in Mark that when Jesus starts talking, the climax of the story is coming about, right? Things are about to be clarified. It's Jesus' interpretation of the events. So what does Jesus say? In verse four, the people scoff at him, take offense at him, do not believe him. And Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus suggests that the familiarity the people of Nazareth had with him actually made them more inclined to reject him, not less. The familiarity that they had with him made them more inclined to reject him, not less. In other words, their familiarity became an excuse for unbelief. I think that's what's so significant about what Mark records in verses two and three about what they said, what the people of Nazareth said. They probably did take offense at the content of Jesus' message, that he was telling them they were sinners and needed to repent and et cetera, but that's not what they said. What they said was, 
we don't need to listen to this guy because that's Mary's boy. He's just one of us. Their familiarity was the excuse they gave for rejecting him. Familiarity becomes an excuse for unbelief. This is something that happens today. Oftentimes, familiarity with Jesus becomes an excuse for our hearts that want to disbelieve, to justify unbelief. There are biblical scholars and historians and archaeologists who are intimately familiar with all the historical details of Jesus, all the accounts written about him, who are some of the most vocal unbelievers of Jesus. And it's because the partial familiarity becomes something the heart takes as an excuse to disbelieve. Or we might also say, um, you know, we don't know anybody today who is a blood relative of Jesus, probably, um, but the Bible calls the church the household of God. And unfortunately, we, we all know sad story after sad story of people who grew up in a Christian household, grew up going to church, who walk away from the faith. And oftentimes, it's the familiarity with the Bible or with the promises of the gospel or with things of God that lead people to deconstruct their faith. It becomes an excuse for unbelief. Deconstruction, you've probably heard in the news or in headlines or social media things, it's a new term for what Mark 6 is showing us is a very old process of people coming to reject Jesus and having to make sense of it, having to justify unbelief by taking it apart. That's what the people in Nazareth did. They took Jesus apart into small pieces that were easy to whisk away. It's hard to disbelieve the Son of God, but if you can take him apart into Mary's boy, the carpenter up the street, that's a lot easier to disregard. And the same sort of things happen today. If we can reduce Jesus into just a myth or the product of corrupt organized religion or or whatever it is, we don't have to encounter him as he is, and it's easier to whisk away. In any case, familiarity today as in Nazareth can become an excuse for unbelief. That's why the people most familiar with Jesus rejected him. That's why the people in Nazareth disbelieved Jesus. But that brings us back to our first question, what happens when a town simply rejects Jesus, has no belief in him? What happens? Well, in verse 5, we saw the answer is nothing happens. In the previous stories of Mark, remember, we've seen Jesus respond to faith, respond in miraculous, climactic ways, but in Mark 6, nothing happens. Jesus sadly dismisses them. He, he marvels at their unbelief. He performs no healings, and he leaves. How sad is that to watch the only hope for salvation leave Nazareth. But why? We've seen in the Gospel of Mark before, Jesus will perform signs to prove he is who he is, 
Why does he not do that here? More to the point, why does Jesus let their ignorance of who he is condemn the people of Nazareth? Well, once again, we can look at verse 4 to further understand why Jesus does not, does no healings, why, why nothing happens in Nazareth. Jesus calls himself a prophet in verse 4. This is the only time in the book of Mark where Jesus calls himself a prophet. Have you considered why that is? It, Jesus is more than a prophet, certainly, but he's not less than a prophet. For Jesus to be a prophet means what uh, we read in the call to worship this morning, that uh, God speaks, his word is brought to God's people by Jesus. In the Old Testament, the prophets were the people commissioned to bring God's word to God's people. They preached the word. And Jesus said uh, earlier in Mark, what I've come to do is to preach the word. And the message the prophets preached was very similar to Jesus's. They came to the people of God in the midst of their sin and said, look, the kingdom of God is your only hope for life and flourishing. And if you will repent, like Jeremiah 7, 5 says, if you reform your ways and turn back to God, you will be restored and put your faith in God's way, and he will give you flourishing in the land. See, what the prophets were preaching was always foreshadowing what Jesus would come and preach. And that's what we, exactly what we saw in Mark 1, Jesus coming and saying, the kingdom of God is not coming, but it is at hand, and I'm the one who brings it in. Repent of your ways and trust in me, and all the benefits of the kingdom of God will be yours all the reconciliation with God that you need will be yours. But Jesus brings up prophets here talking about them being dishonored because that's the story of the Old Testament is that God's people rebel against him. He sends his prophets to plead with them to repent and always they are rejected. Take the prophet Jeremiah, for example. In Jeremiah eleven twenty one. 21, take this for being dishonored in your hometown, the people of Jeremiah's hometown send assassins to try and kill him. And when that doesn't work, the people of Jerusalem put him on trial to try and kill him, and when that doesn't work, they throw him into a well and leave him for dead. Uh, not great job security in being a prophet. But why? They took offense at Jeremiah because he preached the word to them. Because he, one of their countrymen, one of them, somebody they were familiar with, stood up and said, repent, change your ways and follow God, or else destruction will come. And they took offense at that. And it was easier to throw Jeremiah into a well for them than it was to believe that what he was preaching was true. This isn't an isolated incident with Jeremiah. It's the pattern of the Old Testament. Um, the historian of Israel in 2 Chronicles summarizes it this way in 2 Chronicles 36, 15 through 16. He says, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to the people, sent persistently to them by his messengers. He sent prophet after prophet and he had, because he had compassion on his people, because he did not want them to perish in their sin, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. Exactly what happens in Nazareth in Mark 6, scoffing at God's prophet until 
This is the aftermath until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people. Until there was no remedy. You could translate that word remedy in Chronicles as healing. It's built off the Hebrew verb to heal. There was no healing for the people because of their unbelief and their consistent, repeated rejection of his prophets who came pleading with them to repent. There was no remedy. Last year we went through the book of Daniel and saw what the result of that was. It was that the nation died, that it went into exile. So Jesus is uh, calling himself a prophet here is his way of saying, there's more going on here than meets the eye. The principal issue here at Nazareth, this isn't just a story of small town Nazareth being jealous of the small town boy who grew up and got out of Nazareth. There's something more fundamental at play here. The principal issue is God's people rejecting God's word, and the aftermath of that is that there is no healing for them. The heart of the matter is this. Unbelief is not a matter of ignorance. It's a matter of sin. And that's why familiarity does not save. It's like we were talking about earlier. Sometimes we get the feeling that, oh, if only Jesus were here and I could see him face to face, then belief would be easy. But that clearly was not the case with the people at Nazareth. We might feel, if only Jesus would do a sign, a great miracle, then they would believe. But the implication here is that no, they would not. Because they had determined in their hearts to reject Jesus, and their familiarity was just the excuse they found to justify that unbelief. The same is true for us. Scripture is clear that we are accountable for what we believe in. Our hearts are built to believe in something, and being born in sin, as the Bible says we are, means that we are prone to disbelieve God and affirm falsehood in order to justify that unbelief. 1 John 5.10 explains this. John says, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, has made God a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has, has borne concerning him. That's more black and white language than we're comfortable with. But John is very clear. You either believe God and repent, or you disbelieve God and make God out to be a liar. We either believe Jesus' testimony about us, that we are sinners needing reconciliation with God, or we disbelieve Jesus and have to deconstruct him, have to take him apart, have to make him a liar. That's why unbelief is sin. To not believe the testimony of God, you have to believe things like God is not real, or God is not good, God is not able to save, we don't need God, and those are all lies. And they're not just lies, they make God into the sinner rather than us. That is the dichotomy that maybe we're not comfortable with, but that scripture presses upon us. So heed the warning of Nazareth. People who are familiar with Jesus 
are very capable of rejecting him and not believing in him. Familiarity with Jesus does not save anyone. That's why we called this story an anticlimax in the beginning. Because at the beginning we're presented with a conflict that there's unbelief in Nazareth and Jesus does not resolve the problem here. There is no resolution in this story. At the climax of the story, Jesus says their unbelief is to be expected. People have been rejecting God's prophets for a long time. Jesus does not resolve the problem of the story. The nature of sin is to cause unbelief. It's a sickness in need of healing and the sickness goes unhealed in Mark 6. It's not just an anti-climax, it is a heavy story. And we miss some of that heaviness in the first reading. But it's a heavy story. Just as an aside here, I ask you to consider what this story has by way of encouragement for us. If, if we're Christians, we've been commanded to proclaim the gospel to our family and our neighbors. And there's an encouragement in this story that Jesus stood and preached the gospel, Jesus himself, in the flesh, and people rejected him. So don't expect that the same thing won't happen to you. We are not capable of forcing people's hearts to change. But at the same time, we should watch Jesus' response that he is neither apathetic to the fact that people don't believe. He doesn't just throw the word out and say, it's up to you if you believe or not. He's grieved by their unbelief. He marvels at it. And yet, Jesus neither despairs nor gives up either. At the end of verse 6, we see he continued on preaching the gospel to those who would believe. So we should neither be apathetic nor despairing, but faithful in proclaiming the gospel. Anyway, we are given a story with a problem and no resolution. So verses 5 and 6, rather than showing us the resolved problem, show us the aftermath of the unresolved problem. And, and that's where we get this kind of shocking phrase from Mark, Jesus could do no mighty work there. When there's unbelief, Jesus can do no healing. That's a shocking phrase to us because it, at first glance, sounds like it's saying Jesus had no power to heal. And that might imply that our faith is like the juice that Jesus needs to perform miracles. That Jesus is dependent on us in some way to work mighty works. Is that what this is saying? I don't think that's what Mark means to imply. Even in this chapter, he goes on to say, well, he did heal a few people. So it's not the case that Jesus has no power. Jesus fully possesses the power of God. But rather, the point here is that Jesus can do no mighty work because Jesus only saves those who believe in him. And when there is no faith, he will not heal. Pastor Chuck showed us last week how Jesus' 
miracles and healings in the Gospels are never ends in themselves. They're always pictures pointing towards the salvation of souls, the spiritual reconciliation, and the physical healing is a manifestation or a sign of that, a bodying forth of the wellness of being reconciled with God. So we saw last week, Mark is especially clear on this. There are seven times in the Gospel of Mark where he says this explicitly, that Jesus heals those who have faith. We saw one of them last week. Jesus heals the woman in the crowd and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. It's not the case that her faith was the power that made her well, but her faith was the attitude, the posture in her heart that Jesus responded to so that his power would make her well. Mark 6 is the other side of that coin. For those who don't have faith, who reject the gospel, there is no healing. That's what Mark 6.5 is saying. That's what 2 Chronicles 36 was saying. They kept mocking the prophets until there was no healing. This is why Jesus didn't do any healings at Nazareth, because the real sickness was not their wounds and illnesses, but it was their unbelief. This is the way, again, the prophets talked about unbelief. Uh, we, we could look at the prophet Jeremiah once again, at Jeremiah 30, 12 and 13. Jeremiah says concerning the unbelief of Israel, he says, thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable, meaning their unbelief and apostasy from the, from the Lord. Your hurt is incurable, your wound is grievous, there is no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. To explain why Jesus does not heal the people in Nazareth, one commentator says this, medical cure is out of place with people who are going to be damaged as a result of sin. So in other words, healing the diseases in Nazareth would be like putting band-aids on bullet wounds. Now, faith on the other hand, doesn't heal because God needs our faith to work his power. No, God only heals those who have faith because faith is the healing. If the fundamental sickness we have is unbelief, the rejection of God, then faith is that moment where we say, I am sick and I need saving. I believe God's testimony about me that I am a sinner and I need God's forgiveness. And in the Gospels, the physical healings are just the bodying forth of that healing. And more than that, they are a sign pointing forward to the ultimate wellness that those who believe in God will have. So as Christians, we may never experience physical healing in the way that those who Jesus performed miracles on people were, but Jesus' healing of people points forward to the fact that those who are saved in Christ will experience an imperishable wellness when Christ returns. You can read 1 Corinthians 15 to hear all about that. Mere familiarity with Jesus does not save anyone, but faith does. Faith is the means by which Jesus heals and Jesus saves. Where there was no faith in Nazareth, there was no healing, no mighty works. 
So wait, you might say, I thought we just sang a song about how salvation is by grace alone. That it is entirely God's unmerited favor giving uh, us salvation. Does that mean that if Jesus requires faith, he's asking us to earn our salvation? That we have to do something to be saved? Once again, no. Could point a couple places in Scripture to say that. One would be Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which we read earlier, or I point you now to Romans 4, 16. And this is what Paul says about salvation in Romans 4. He says, That is why it, salvation, depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Paul's perfectly happy to say, your salvation depends on you putting faith in Jesus because and so that you would not earn it, but that God would give it by grace. Because trying to earn your salvation is saying, if I do A, B, and C good things, I will earn something that God owes me, that I will deserve him giving me salvation and healing. But faith is the very opposite of that. It's saying, I can't do that. I have no power to save myself, to earn this. All I have is the posture of pure dependence and trust, saying, I am throwing myself upon Jesus because he is the only one who can justify me. In that way, salvation depends on faith. Faith is the healing, the healing of unbelief. Once again, Mark 6 is giving us the other side of that coin. Where there is no faith, there's no healing. Another commentator on Mark calls this the ironic pseudo-power of unbelief, the refusal of God's gifts. Unbelief appears like it has this power because unbelief is none other than the rejection of God's power. That's what we saw in Mark 3 with the unforgivable sin being that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the rejection of God's gift of life. You cannot have life if life is what you have rejected, and rejecting Jesus is rejecting life. It is rejecting healing. It is rejecting forgiveness. So Mark 6, 1 through 6, exists in the book of Mark to give us this weighty warning that your familiarity with Jesus, the facts you know about him, are not what save you. That even those familiar with Jesus may suffer the doom of unbelief, which is that there is no healing. But implicitly, the other side of that coin in Mark 6 is that for those who do have faith, there is healing. And we don't have to go far in the book of Mark to see that explicitly elsewhere. That when there is faith, there is healing. There is restoration. There is forgiveness. Now, if you're a Christian and you're like me, the command, have faith, can be a difficult one to stomach sometimes because it sounds very abstract. It sounds like one of those things where you, you're like, well, I would love to have faith, but I don't exactly know how to flip that switch and, and turn that on. How can we just have faith? Especially 
Because the news, as, as we've been unpacking today, is worse than that. It's not just that it's hard to have faith, it's that we're born with sinful hearts that do not want to believe in Jesus. That's what we're naturally geared towards. That's what we've been saying today. Our hearts are devious enough that they can even take the truth we know about Jesus and twist it into an excuse for unbelief. But brothers and sisters, I don't believe that this story is here to make us paranoid about our salvation or to take away our assurance. That's not the point. And it's not the point because, remember, there's no resolution to this story, but Mark 6, 1 through 6 is not the end of the gospel of Mark. The lack of resolution here is asking us to look forward. Look forward to when does this loose end get tied up? And it gets tied up in what we talked about the Friday before last, that Jesus went on and ascended the hill at Calvary and was nailed to the cross and suffered and died on behalf of even those of his people who were not believing in him. Even the very people who scoffed at him, he died to save. The famous passage in Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, including while we were still unbelievers, Christ died for us. Even in Mark 6, some of those brothers Jesus names, or the, the, the townsfolk name, we know some of those brothers later believed in Jesus. James wrote the book of James. Judah was, is the Jude who wrote Jude. Even some of those scoffing and unbelieving and rejecting Jesus in Nazareth in Mark 6, even some of them were the ones Christ died and suffered for to take away their sins. And after rising from the grave, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. John 16, 8 tells us the Holy Spirit's work is to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart, one whose nature it is to repent and believe rather than to disbelieve and justify ourselves. That's the resolution of this story, that unbelief is an incurable sickness, or it was, that Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, has provided a cure for that sickness. It's the resolution that Jeremiah didn't have when he preached. It's the resolution that was not here yet in Mark 6, but it is the resolution that's here now. So Christian, take heart, because Jesus has made a way for you to believe. There's a beautiful prayer in Mark 9:24 that I think summarizes this tension in the Christian life, this already not yet of having believed in Jesus yet still struggling with the sin of unbelief, and it's this. I believe, help my unbelief. What a beautiful paradox that is. We are believers who still struggle with unbelief, but not according to your own strength, not according to your own morality or your own familiarity or your own expertise, but according to the power of God's Spirit working in you, there is help for your unbelief. 
Help that began the first day you believed and help that will continue until the day your salvation is perfected and you stand before God without an ounce of unbelief in your heart. May we be Christians whose prayer lives are characterized by that paradox. I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe you are here today and you're not a believer in Jesus. The bad news for you today is what Mark 6 has clearly shown, that there is no healing for you. There is no forgiveness. There is no hope. There is no life apart from Jesus. The good news is that the same gospel that Jesus was preaching and the same gospel being preached today is available to you still. The good news that forgiveness and healing is available in Jesus who suffered on the cross for sinners like you and me, for unbelievers like you and me. And if you would cry out in faith, if you would cast yourself upon Jesus, that healing can be yours. Jesus has made a way for you to believe too. So if you're an unbeliever, I urge you, trust in the word of God, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is right about you, more right than you are about yourself, that you are a sinner, that the sins you're committing, the lust, the pride, the anger, the malice, whether you're ready to admit it or not, are eating you alive right now, and that though you are a sinner, because of Christ, you don't have to be anymore. That does not have to be your final doom, but that there is hope for healing. So repent of your unbelief and your sin and trust that God knows you and in Christ he will forgive your guilt and make you good. Make you well. We can be well in Christ. Let's pray for this sort of true faith now. Father God, we thank you for the climactic stories, the climactic accounts of Jesus and his power and his compassion, and also for the cautionary tales. We're thankful for the warnings that sober us. And Lord, I pray that this would convict any of us who have been resting not in Christ but in our familiarity that it is only faith in Jesus that saves. And God, we confess we believe and we need help with our unbelief. Would you help our unbelief? Would you cure that sickness in us that makes us reject you and give us that wellness that makes us embrace you? And we look forward to the day when that wellness will be bodied forth from the inside out in our imperishable resurrection bodies. The very pictures of the salvation you've bought for us 
God, give us faith. Give us confidence in that. That Christ saves. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.